recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 4th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In our last presentation of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, we took a long digression in order to explain that Jesus hates. That's a provocative title, but it's true. Jesus hates. And also to explain some of what it is that Jesus hates. Doing so, we did not have the opportunity to, dis- to discuss some of the 12, first 12 verses of Ephesians chapter 5 from all of the perspectives in which we believe that they need to be discussed. We hope to compensate for that here by repeating those first 12 verses, summarizing and adding to what we had previously explained. Tonight's program is titled, Nearly as Provocatively, Menage a Trois, the order of the kingdom, because the order of the kingdom of God is exactly that. On multiple levels, it consists of a husband and a wife and God. The French phrase, Menage a Trois, means a household for three. The enemies of Yahweh our God have ascribed to it a meaning in modern literature which the phrase by itself does not convey just as they corrupt every other facet of our society with their gross perversions. The French word menage refers to the order of a household and it is related to our English word manage as well as words such as manor and mansion. As we approach the end of this chapter of Ephesians, it will become apparent why we have subtitled this program, Menage a Trois, The Order of the Kingdom. The order of the creation of Yahweh our God is indeed an order of interdependent family units, each independently arranged in a menage a trois between a man, a woman, and God himself, and no Christian household can be healthy and complete without all three members. As we have previously detailed here in these presentations, in the first half of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, he had explained to them many of the reasons why they should be Christians, which are related to covenant theology and the apostles' ministry of reconciliation to the nations of scattered Israel. Now in his second half of his epistle, he explains to them how they should be Christians, exhorting them to keep the commandments of God, to adhere to the truth of God in spite of worldly falsehoods, and to act towards one another with kindness, patience, and charity, maintaining unity in the bond of the Spirit. Making this exhortation, here in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul wrote, 
Therefore, you must be imitators of Yahweh as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ has also loved us and surrendered himself on our behalf, an application or an offering, if you will, an application and sacrifice to Yahweh for an essence of sweet aroma. And of course, the Messiah had suffered and died on behalf of the sins of the children of Israel, so that the children of Israel could be reconciled to God, as the prophets foretold in places such as Daniel chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 53, things that we spoke about at great length in the first half of this epistle, which we need not repeat here. However, on this account, Paul warns the Ephesians concerning sin, and he wrote, but fornication and all uncleanness or greediness, you must not even specify among you, just as is suitable with saints, an abusiveness and foolish speaking or ribaldry, which things are not fitting, but thanksgiving instead. This is known by you, that any fornicator or unclean or greedy person who is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of the anointed or of Christ and of Yahweh. Yet Paul says in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 11 that all Israel shall be saved. So we hear the question asked that if any of the children of Israel have done any of these things, how could those who have done such things be saved? Yet the purpose of Christ is forgiveness and mercy for sin, so that the children of Israel may return to their God and repent of their sin. Where Paul had said that all Israel shall be saved, he was paraphrasing in reference to the word of Yahweh as it is found in Isaiah chapter 45. Paul didn't invent the theology. It's already in the Old Testament in several places. There are commentators who attempt to reconcile the apparent discrepancy between Paul's statement and the idea that all Israel will indeed be saved by claiming that the all Israel to which Paul had referred were merely all the tribes of Israel, meaning portions of Israel from each of the 12 tribes. But that is not what it says in Isaiah, where we read in Isaiah chapter 45 from verse 17, but Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he that established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare the things that are right, not man. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image 
and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? And who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by my mouth, by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, meaning that it shall not fail, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So the ultimate purpose of God is that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear unto him, referring to every one of the seed of Jacob. Paul had cited that portion of the passage more fully in Romans chapter 14, and again in respect to Christ in Philippians chapter 2. So Isaiah concludes in the final verse of the chapter, in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. And he is not merely referring to portions of each of the 12 tribes. Rather, he is referring to all of the seed of Israel, meaning each individual Israelite. If either Paul or Isaiah meant merely all of Israel which have not repented before death, then there is no meaning to the words of Paul where he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men may follow after. So it is evident that some of the seed of Israel may not repent until, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 14, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, saith Yahweh, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So we see that some knees aren't going to bow and some knees, some tongues are not going to profess to God until after they face that final judgment before their creator. Therefore, where Paul says here that any fornicator or unclean or greedy person who is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of the anointed and of Yahweh, Christians should understand the importance of repentance for sin before facing the judgment seat of Christ, as Paul had explained in his second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 5, where he says from verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body while he lived, according to what he has done 
whether it be good or bad. There is no discrepancy in these ideas. All Israel shall indeed be saved, but all Israelites shall not receive equal reward. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that even if all of a man's deeds burn up in the fire, meaning that there's nothing good left, no more gold, silver, or precious stones, he himself shall be saved. As it says in Daniel, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, as Paul had said in his first epistle to the Corinthians, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Concerning sin, Paul then warns that no one must deceive you with empty words, for on account of these things the wrath of Yahweh comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, you must not be partakers with them. As we illustrated at length in our last segment of this presentation, the denominational churches are convincing people to hate the sin but love the sinner. However, that is a false gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had said, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater. These are Christians, right? Any man that is called a brother. Or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such a one, no, not even to eat. In Romans chapter 1, Paul had warned that not only are sinners worthy of the punishment of the laws of Yahweh, but also those who are accepting of such sinners. Christians must hate the sin, and they must also hate the sinner, meaning that they must ostracize the unrepentant sinners from their communities. Until they do, Christians shall suffer the same punishments that the sinners are liable for. That is why all of the formerly Christian nations are being overrun with aliens in this very day today. We see this in part in the curses of disobedience given to the ancient children of Israel, where it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that thy sons and thy daughters shall be given to another people, to niggers, basically. That's what's going on now. And thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long. And there shall be no might in thine hand, meaning that you won't be able to do a damn thing about it. The fruit of thy land and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up. These cities full of Negroes and Arabs that are consuming all of our goods through taxes and the welfare and EBT cards. And thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed always, so that thou, 
shalt be mad for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. And sure enough, this has come to pass. And today we sit in that very anger, watching white men cohabit with females of the yellow races, or white women taken away with Negroes, watching Europe being overrun with Arabs and Turks, and America with Mexicans, watching the kingdom of God, the imaginably superior white race, allow itself to be consumed with people who are not even people. And even inviting them to do so. Recently, there's been a certain meme floating around social media. of a hippie-looking Jesus figure knocking on a wooden door. The voice inside says, what do you want? And the hippie-looking Jesus answers, let me in so that I can save you. The voice inside says, save me from what? So the hippie-looking Jesus is portrayed as saying, from what I am going to do to you if you don't let me in. The meme is supposed to show a contradiction in the Christian faith. But what it portrays is not at all Christian. The meme is a mischaracterization of Christianity promoted by those who hate Christ. The faith of our fathers is not centered around Christ punishing men merely for not believing him but rather the faith of our fathers is centered around sin and the consequences of sin. When the white man keeps the laws of his God, the spirit of God cohabits within the white man, and he is not harmed by evil. He has no fear of death in the face of his enemies, and he overcomes them. When the white man departs from the laws of his God, the Spirit of God abandons the white man to his own devices. He becomes a collection of effeminate little marshmallows. And the white man suffers as a natural result of his departure from God. Ultimately, the punishment may be from God, but that is because it is a part of the natural order of his creation, or the natural consequences of the corruption of that creation. Therefore, the punishment is actually self-inflicted. Because the white man, in his sin, refuses to acknowledge the natural order of the creation. It is the arrogance of man to deny the creator, thinking that if he were his own God, he could only be held accountable to himself. 
Therefore, man will be punished by his creator until, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So accepting Christ, one doesn't merely believe in some hippie, freaky, loving Jesus. One accepts that there is a God who created man and who also has a natural law that man should abide by in order to succeed in the establishment of civilization and live in harmony with his fellow man. Abiding by that natural law, the perverts of all society are ostracized and marginalized. Therefore, here in Ephesians, Paul warns these Christians that no one must deceive you with empty words, with vain words. For on account of these things, referring to those Sinful acts, which he had mentioned, the wrath of Yahweh comes upon the sons of disobedience. There is no doubt. Then, because they are certainly descendants of the ancient Israelites, he further exhorts his readers, For you were once darkness, but are now light in the prince. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and justness and truth, scrutinizing what is acceptable to the prince, or, if you will, to the Lord. The purpose of the gospel, as it was announced by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and recorded in Luke chapter 1, was in part to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The way of peace, the only way of peace, is to be obedient to the laws of God. Christ himself had announced, as it is recorded in John chapter 8, that I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Christ also spoke of himself in John chapter 12, where he said to his followers, Yet a little while is the light with you, Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be children of light. These announcements in the gospel are in fulfillment of certain messianic prophecies, such as that which is found in Isaiah chapter 42, from verse 5. Thus saith, Yahweh God, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that is 
giving breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations. This is the Messiah and the purpose of the gospel. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. These prisoners were the children of Israel in captivity and alienated from Yahweh their God, who were then being reconciled to God through Christ. In captivity, they are darkness. In Christ, they are light. So Christ quoted from those same chapters of Isaiah where he is recorded in Luke chapter 4 as having announced that the spirit of Yahweh is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The light which came into the world in Christ is that same light which came out of the pages of the Old Testament. Therefore, the only way that Christians can be found scrutinizing what is acceptable to the Lord is by examining the scriptures of the Old Testament. As Paul had said in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 15, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, not for the Jews, for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And finally, Paul once again speaks of rejecting sinners, where he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even reprove them for the saints being done by them secretly. It is disgraceful even to speak of, especially in those Roman Catholic rectories and church basements, and in those synagogues. So Christians should not hate the sin, love the sinner. Rather, Christians should hate the sin and reprove the sinner, and then ostracize the sinner from their community by examining the commandments of Christ in the Old Testament, which he had exhorted his followers to keep, Christians scrutinizing what is acceptable to the Lord must see that fornicators, sodomites, and all other such sinners must be ostracized, or the communities in which they are accepted shall suffer the judgment of God. Get rid of the sodomites or end up like Sodom. As Paul had said here earlier, no one must deceive you with empty words. For on account of these things, the wrath of Yahweh comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, you must not be partakers with them. There is no escaping that judgment, denying that God exists, denying that for our white race, salvation can only be found in Christ, will not allow our race to escape that judgment. We can't 
deny God out of existence. One's denial of God does not change the reality of God. If we could be our own gods, as so many of these turkeys claim, at this very moment, perhaps, we would not be overrun by all those who hate us. The proof of the wrath of God is manifest in every white nation today as it progresses. 1,300 years ago, the Christian Charles Martel stopped the vast armies of the Arabs in their tracks at Tours and turned them out of France. Appropriately, he looted the Roman churches to pay for his troops. 600 years ago, the advances of the Turks were halted by Christian armies on the plains of Kosovo. And only a little over 300 years ago, they were finally stopped for good, temporarily for good, right? At the gates of Vienna, by Christians at Vienna. From there, they were ultimately pushed back out of Central Europe. But now, over these past 200 years, the white European nations have abandoned Christianity have come to be ruled over by Jews, the enemies of Christ. That's not a coincidence. Abandon Christianity, and you're ruled by Satan. And the Arabs and the Turks merely walk into Europe without swords drawn, without guns in their hands. They merely walk into Europe in ever-increasing numbers. These circumstances are not a coincidence. And those who do not return to Christ and repent of their sins shall all suffer. Those who seek to be their own gods and secure their own destiny are failing miserably, and they shall all perish in their futility. There's no avoiding it. And with that, we'll commence with Ephesians 5.13. Now all things being reproved by the light. Are made manifest. For everything being made manifest is light. Meaning that all the darkness is going to be destroyed. Therefore he says, awaken you who are sleeping. And rise up from among the dead, and Christ shall shine upon you. And he's not really referring to dead people. Here Paul seems to be paraphrasing from both Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, and Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. The first passage from Isaiah chapter 29 carries a message of deliverance for the children of Israel in their reconciliation to Yahweh their God. A message of destruction for the enemies of God accompanies it. 
And we will read Isaiah 29 from verse 13. O Yahweh our God, other lords besides thee have had dominion over us. We would call them Jews, right? But by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead. They shall not live. They are dead prophetically. They are deceased. They shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. This is the bright outlook. Thou hast increased the nation, O Yahweh. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth, referring to the scattered children of Israel. Yahweh, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain and cries out in her pangs. So have we been in thy sight, O Yahweh. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth. No, we haven't. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. The scattered Israelites in their nations cannot save themselves from the inhabitants of the world. Thy dead man shall live together with my dead body, meaning the body of Christ, they shall arise, awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. And this is reminiscent of the Passover deliverance in Egypt, where those who had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts were not touched by the angel of death. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, Yahweh comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth shall also disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. The second passage Paul paraphrases here, found in Isaiah chapter 60, also bears a message of deliverance with similar language. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of Yahweh is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But Yahweh shall arise upon me, and his glory shall be seen upon me. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. The darkness that covers the earth in his second passage seems to be a reference to the indignation of God to befall the people in verse 20 of the first passage which we cited from Isaiah 29. 
Speaking on a personal level, answering questions about his own motivation and the purpose of his ministry, Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Indeed, not one thing for myself am I conscious. In other words, he wasn't working for his own well-being. Although not in this have I been proven, but it is the prince who examines me. Consequently, do not judge one prematurely until the prince should come, who will both illuminate the secrets of darkness and make known the counsels of hearts. Then, at that time, to each there will be approval from Yahweh. And this is one one more reason why we must understand that all Israel shall be saved in spite of what we ourselves perceive of men, because only God knows the truth behind the causes of the acts of men. As Christ himself said in the Gospel, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes under the Father but by me. Christ is the true light, as he refers to himself in the Revelation as the bright and morning star, and the true original meaning of the term sun god, since he alone brings the true light into the world. So Paul beckons here, awaken you who are sleeping and rise up from among the dead and Christ shall shine upon you. He's talking about those who are sleeping between the ears, not necessarily, not necessarily those sleeping in the ground. We will commence with verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. So then, watch precisely how you walk, not as the stupid, but as the wise. And of course, instead of stupid, we may have written unwise. We chose to be purposely blunt. Buying the time, because the days are evil. That Greek verb, exagorazo, is literally to buy up. Although where it appears in the context of Galatians chapter 3.13 and Galatians 4.5, redeem, as we have translated it, is certainly acceptable. The word appears in the New Testament in one other place, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, where once again, time is the object. And therefore, the literal rendering of the phrase, buying the time, is most appropriate and fits our English idiom rather well. The word appears once in the Septuagint in Daniel chapter 2, in verse 8, where it is with time, once again as the object, bargaining for time. And Brenton has, in his Septuagint, trying to gain time. 
And the king answered and said, Verily, I know that you are trying to gain time, meaning that people were bargaining for time. So buying the time fits very well. In these past two chapters of this epistle, in response to the evil world around them, Paul is telling these Ephesians to work towards the restoration of the saints, which is the body of Christ, to speak the truth with love, to rebuke and reprove those who do evil, and now to buy the time, to bargain for time, because the days are evil, which indicates that Christians should not attempt to take the vengeance which belongs to Yahweh our God into their own hands. It's Yahweh who will avenge the wicked. In this manner, Paul also says, for this reason, do not be foolish. Rather, understand what is the will of the prince or the Lord. P46 the third century papyrus actually has what is the will of God. And the Codex Alexandrinus, I'm sorry, what is the will of Christ? The Codex Alexandrinus has what is the will of God. In this regard, the, gospel, the Apostle John wrote in chapter 5 of his first epistle, if one should see his brother committing a sin not resulting in death, he shall ask, and he shall give life to him, to those sinning not resulting in death. In other words, to those committing sins which do not result in death. And John says, there is a sin resulting in death. I do not speak concerning that, that one should ask. We would argue separately that that is race mixing, fornication, results in death. You destroy your race. We don't pray for people who have mixed their races, or at least that's the way I would read that chapter of John. And he goes on to say, all sin is injustice, yet there is sin not resulting in death. For we know that each who has been born from of Yahweh does not sin. Rather, he born from of Yahweh keeps himself and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from of Yahweh, and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. Yet we know that the Son of Yahweh has come and gave to us an understanding that we may know the truth, and we are in the truth among the number of his son, Yahshua Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So Christians should not speak the truth with love on account of the world, but they should speak the truth with love and reprove the sinners among their brethren in spite of the world. As Paul had said in Romans chapter 12, in turn quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith Yahweh. However, Yahweh God works through his people. 
on the other hand. And in his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul advised them to be prepared to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And in this regard, Paul further admonishes the Ephesians in verse 18. And do not be intoxicated with wine, in which there is abandonment. Rather, you be filled with the Spirit. In Psalm 104, we read some of the blessings of God from verse 14. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth good out of the earth, and wine that makes glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengthens a man's heart. Likewise, in Proverbs chapter 3, from verse 9, Honor Yahweh with thy substance, and with the firstfruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. But wine can also be medicinal, as Paul advised Timothy to use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often or frequent infirmities. So while wine can be beneficial, intoxication is certainly something to be avoided, as Paul also warned against those who were given too much wine in his epistles to both Timothy and Titus. Likewise, the Apostle Peter in chapter 4 of his first epistle discussed the former sins of the children of Israel who had lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. The abandonment to which intoxication leads is illustrated in part and there are many examples in the Old Testament to turn to elucidate this, but it's illustrated in part in Isaiah chapter 5, where it says, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflames them, the harp and the viol and the tabraeum, and the pipe and the wine are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of Yahweh, neither consider the operation of his hands. That's abandonment. In the same regard, Paul continues in his admonishment that Christians do consider the work of Yahweh. From verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 5, talking to yourselves with psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Prince, at all times being thankful for all things, in the name of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, to Yahweh, even the Father. The phrase, which is literally talking to yourselves, as we have translated it, may have been rendered speaking among yourselves. As we have previously said in our discussion of verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, a Christian's prayer should be his thought, 
And a Christian, Christian's thought should be one's prayer. There should be no distinction. King David, who had continually meditated on the law of God and often had psalms and hymns as well, should be a primary example of what Paul describes here. Likewise, from the 77th Psalm, a Psalm of Asaph, we read, I will remember the works of Yahweh. Surely will I remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of all thy doings. In the balance of this chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, we find the foundations for true Christian community. And Paul begins by admonishing Christians to subject yourselves to one another in fear of Christ. And this word fear occurs a couple of times in this chapter. The word is phobos. It's literally fear from which we get the English word or the English suffix or prefix, I'm sorry, phobia. Actually, it is, it is often a suffix. I'm sorry. Phobia comes from this word phobos. It's literally fear, but it may have been translated as awe or reverence. This is what Christ himself had taught at the famous Sermon on the Mount recorded in the Gospels of both Matthew and Luke, to subject yourselves to one another. As, for example, where Christ had said in Matthew chapter 5, Now I say to you, not to oppose evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And to him desiring for you to be judged and to receive your cloak, give up to him also your shirt. And whosoever shall press you for one mile, go with him too. Give to him asking you, and you should not turn away from him wishing to borrow from you. Now, of course, Christ was only speaking to the children of Israel in reference to the children of Israel. But in this manner, as he had said earlier in that same chapter, Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Yahshua Christ had devoted his life for the benefit of his people. As Paul had said here in verse 2 of this chapter, walk in love, just as Christ has also loved us and surrendered himself on our behalf. Christians should in turn devote their lives for the benefit of their people. As Christ admonished in Luke chapter 9, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The same is recorded in Matthew chapter 16 and in Mark chapters 8 and 10. If all Christians devoted their lives to the benefit of their brethren and their communities in a little time, the kingdom of heaven would materialize. Paul continues in verse 22. Wives, to their own husbands, as if to the prince, because the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the assembly. He 
is the deliverer of the body. Now, some manuscripts repeat the verb here. Wives must submit themselves to their own husbands. Or simply, as the King James Version has, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And then in verse 24, we read, but as the assembly is subject to Christ, in that manner also wives in everything to their husbands. So while Christian wives must submit themselves to their husbands, in turn, Christian husbands must be subject to Christ. Therefore, the Christian marriage has three parties, Christ being the first part, the husband being the second part, and the wife being the third part. That is indeed the original and only legitimate menage a trois. Every Christian marriage should be viewed with that perspective. It should be a household of three. Husbands, love the wives. Just as Christ has also loved the assembly and had surrendered himself for it. Husbands should therefore love their wives to the same extent that Yahshua Christ loved the children of Israel, that he was even willing to die on their behalf. Men should be willing to die for their families. But if their families, or especially their wives, don't submit to the husbands, how could they expect men to be willing to die for them? It doesn't work. There is an illustration throughout Scripture that the children of Israel, as a people, are collectively the wife of Yahweh their God. Christ died on behalf of his wife. That is the analogy often used in the prophets, and especially in Hosea. And that is also the analogy used by Paul, for instance, in Romans chapter 7, and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So in Romans 7, speaking of the relationship of Israel with Yahweh under the judgments of the law, Paul wrote, for a woman married to a living husband is bound by law, but if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ, for you to be found with another, who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. Yahshua Christ had died in place of the children of Israel, as the nation, the wife of Yahweh, back in the Old Testament, had committed adultery, and they were therefore 
liable to die under that law. Yahweh, being God, has the ability to fulfill the letter of the law by dying, but then to take his life back again. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, For I admire you with the zeal of Yahweh, for I have joined you to one husband with the gospel, with the gospel message to present a chaste virgin to Christ. This is in fulfillment of the words of the prophet Hosea, through whom Yahweh had promised the children of Israel that I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. And I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh, Yahshua Christ. Being Yahweh God manifest in the flesh is representative of the husband of the collective children of Israel. His relationship with Israel may also be described as a menage a trois, a household of three, between God the Father, Yahshua Christ, and the children of Israel. It must also be noted that anyone attempting to introduce any other people into that relationship besides the children of Israel is basically accusing Christ of committing adultery. And Paul continues in verse 26, and he says, in order that, speaking of the assembly, the body of Christ, in order that he would consecrate it cleansing it in the bath of the water in the word, that he may present it to himself in honor, the assembly not having a blemish or a wrinkle or any of such things, but that it would be holy and blameless. And here we see the true Christian baptism. No ritual of men, will be of any service to man as a replacement for this. That is, the word of God by which the children of Israel were truly cleansed. Yahshua Christ himself stated to his disciples, as it is recorded in John chapter 15, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul had asserted that there is one Lord, Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God, one faith, the faith of Abraham, that Yahweh would make the seed of Abraham into many nations, and one baptism. And of course, all Christians should be able to count to one. Therefore, the Christian who immerses himself in the word of God and seeks to live by it, has that 
washing of water in the word and has no need for any ritual conducted by man. The Apostle Peter, in the third chapter of his epistle, spoke similarly, where he said that baptism was not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, meaning water baptism, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And Paul continues in verse 28. So husbands are obliged to love their own wives, not anybody else's wife, right? To love their own wives as their own bodies. He who is loving his own wife loves himself. No one has at any time hated his own flesh, but nourishes and comforts it, just as also Christ the assembly, because we are members of his body. And the Codex Beze, the 6th century codex known only as 0285, and the majority text, all have appended to the end of verse 30 the phrase, from of his flesh and from of his bones, a phrase which the King James Version also has. We've omitted that phrase because it's not found in the third century papyrus P46 or the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and so on. The interpolation, though, is interesting because it's a citation from the law found in Genesis 2.23. Whereupon, seeing Eve for the first time, Adam is depicted as having said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. These are the grounds for lawful marriage, that the woman be of the same racial stock of the man, as the man, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. For that very reason, we are told that Yahweh God had introduced to Adam every beast of his creation. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmate for him. So Eve was depicted as having been created from Adam's own body so that she would be a suitable wife, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Here, Paul also infers that as a man naturally provides for himself and his family, Yahshua Christ in turn provides for his people in that same manner because the Christian assembly is indeed the body of Christ in the same manner that a man and a woman being of the same flesh and bone may become one body as Paul illustrates in the following verse for this reason shall a man leave father and mother and shall join to his wife and the two shall be for one flesh and here Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where we see the plan of God was revealed even before either Adam or Eve had become a father or a mother, a fact often overlooked by those who comment on Genesis chapter 3. 
who comment rather rashly on Genesis chapter 3. So from the beginning, where we see father and mother mentioned in Genesis 2.24, as soon as Eve is created, we see that man was indeed made to have children. This passage from Genesis was also cited in the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Matthew, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Where the law speaks of men, it should also hold for women that they should put their husbands above their own parents and siblings. It is not that sons should abandon their parents or that wives should abandon their parents, since we see frequently in the Old Testament the responsibility of a son to look after his parents in their old age. But the husband-wife union is preeminent above other family relations. That's the meaning of Genesis 2.24. You're still to honor your father and mother. Thus, Paul concludes, this mystery is great, and I speak for Christ and for the assembly. He's not speaking of the man and the woman necessarily. We would insist that ultimately, the one flesh of the husband and wife is found in the resulting children. But Paul refers to a mystery where he speaks for Christ and the assembly, and not merely for the husband and wife. Yahshua Christ, being Yahweh God incarnate, is joined to the assembly, which are the children of Israel, as one flesh. That is the mystery of which Paul speaks. Finally, with verse 33 of Ephesians chapter 5. Nevertheless, each and every one of you must love his own wife as himself. And a wife should see that she fears the husband. And again, that word fear can mean awe or respect. This is the natural order of God. And this is the original menage a trois of the creation of God. Yahweh God is first, then the man, and then his wife. The three are, all three are crucial to the building of the kingdom. The woman was created as a helpmate for man, as we may read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. For Adam there was not found a helpmate for him. And the response was to create Eve. Therefore, the woman was created on account of man, as Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that neither was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. In the opening of Genesis chapter 3, the woman is found alone with the serpent. We're not told where Adam was. Perhaps he was off watching a ball game and having a beer. But the woman was found alone, and she was seduced. Thus Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Adam was not deceived, but the woman had been thoroughly beguiled 
when the transgression occurred. For this reason, Paul advises elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that a man should not be separated from his wife where he said because of fornication each man must have his own wife and each woman must have her own husband the husband must render the obligation due to the wife and in like manner the wife also to the husband and here Paul is speaking of the obligation of sexual relations with a spouse which is also mentioned in the Old Testament the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband and in like manner also the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife do not withdraw from one another unless in agreement for a time in order that you would devote time to prayer for prayer and come together into one place again so the only legitimate reason for separation between a husband and wife is for prayer and the inferences for a short time and come together into one place again that the adversary or Satan would not tempt you due to your incontinence and this too is a reference to Genesis chapter 3 so Eve sinned when she was seduced and Adam then made a conscious decision to follow her purposely disobeying Yahweh is God so it is apparent that a woman should not be apart from her husband or it is an invitation to sin and a man should not depart from the ways of his God for that same reason where Yahweh says to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee he is not changing the natural order of his creation but rather he is only reaffirming that order because the woman had departed from it when she submitted herself to the serpent when her desire was to that tree of knowledge that looked good for food so the married couple are the basic unit of the kingdom of God the model for the body of Christ and it requires all three members God the husband and the wife to keep each of these basic units intact each of these Christian families that come together to make up the body of Christ thank you for listening that concludes our presentation of Ephesians chapter 5 Yahweh willing we will be here next week and conclude our presentation of Ephesians with chapter 6 praise Yahweh the God of Israel and good night